I learned this way that we play from our eyes. We are taught to read. Reading is important. And what can end up happening is that can become a huge crush, crutch for people. And I know people who are very advanced level, you know, doctorates in, in classical piano where they freak out if they need to improvise. And so the idea of this course or the idea of improvising is to take that, the eyes out of it and tune back into the ears and you could even say to like the heart space or the spiritual space of, of playing. Ben Capolo and welcome to All Keyed Up, Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. Thanks so much for listening. The piece you're listening to is called She Sings and it was composed and performed by today's guest, Brenda Earl Stokes. Although she was trained classically, Brenda is a jazz musician in all senses of the word. A composer, singer, pianist, and teacher. She's performed with many world-renowned artists such as John Riley, held residencies at prestigious institutions such as the Kennedy Center, and recorded multiple solo albums. For today, however, we're going to focus on her educational work. Brenda is on the faculty at Fordham University, runs a private studio in New York City. She's developed educational programming for the Midori and Friends Foundation, the New York Pops Kids in the Balcony program, and she's held a 10-year residency at the Ronald McDonald House in New York City. Brenda has a series of online courses in piano skills for singers, jazz piano, improvisation, and musicianship courses, and she has a YouTube channel where she uploads performances and educational materials. Brenda, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, So before we delve into the educational aspect and the specific courses, I'm wondering if you could just, broadly speaking, talk a little bit about how your teaching approach has been inspired by your wide range of musical interests as a jazz singer, performer, pianist, composer, and all of that. Well, I've always had my um, finger in a lot of different pies musically from the time that I was very young. So I, I started classical piano training when I was a kid. And I started clarinet wasn't when I was nine, and then when I was in high school, I discovered the jazz band, and at the same time, um, they reduced our um, music teachers down to two from three, and so they invited me to be the guest conductor for the year of our high school chorus. Um, so at 16, I was the <laughs> choral director, and since then, I've, I've gone on to do a lot of things because... First of all, I want to make a living. Um, but second of all, I, I really have a lot of curiosity. So I've done everything from like sing-along piano bar. Um, I played in a rock band that opened for Duran Duran once. Wow. Um, <laughs> I've like off, I've done off-Broadway um, music productions. I've played for Broadway singers. Um, I've sort of done a really big mix of things. I've been a classical choral conductor and choral singer. So I'm just a very curious person and mm-hmm. um, like to kind of get into stuff. Yeah, and so how would you say that in general, both with the courses that you provide and with your teaching in general, would you say that that's kind of had an impact on the way that you approach fostering a love of music in your students? Oh, absolutely. I I think as as music teachers or teachers in general, the more that we have available to us, the more we can serve our students. So if someone comes in and is interested in something, well, I can serve them if I know something about that. Um, And for people that come in and they may not know what they want to do, I have a huge repertoire of things that I can bring to them as a as a gift. And so that's something that is 
I find the most interesting thing about teaching is somebody coming in, not clear what it is that they want to do, but then my ability to hone in on what that might be and provide it for them and for them to say, yes, I didn't have the words to articulate. This is what I wanted to do, but this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, this idea of like customizing the curriculum for the student as much as possible is something I think about a lot in my own teaching. And I really feel from the courses you have on your site. Um, so I would like to talk a little bit about these courses. So you use an interesting platform that I hadn't actually heard of before researching you called Teachable. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that platform and just give a bird's eye view of the uh, courses you offer. Right. So Teachable is a platform um, for online course creators. So it's sort of like an Etsy for or an eBay for people who create course materials. And I did a lot of research uh, on this and, and love the platform because it's very easy to just kind of plug and play. You put all your information. It looks it's very easy to use. And they also interface with um, your customers, your client base, so that they take care of all that stuff, and then I just get to create the courses. So back in, I guess it's 2018, I had this idea that what if I could create a course using the material that I've been teaching. Um, I've been working with a lot of singers and teaching them how to play piano. And I developed this curriculum and immediately taught myself how to film. I'd never done it edit film, <laughs> edit audio, like do the whole wazoo, um, and created this course called Piano Skills for Singers. And I had such an incredible response for it that I created a level two. Um, and then I created a course called Jazz Piano Accompaniment, which is sort of the, the one-stop shop for anyone who wants to learn jazz. And that's for singers or pianists who just want to get a real clear picture on how to play legitimate real jazz in a short, re relatively short period of time, sort of takes all the mystery out of it. Um, and then this past June, I created a course called Piano Improvisation for Everyone, and it's literally for anyone who can play a little bit of piano. Um, an advanced pianist like yourself could use the information to kind of explore different avenues of improvisation, or it's material you could use with your students. Or for somebody who plays a little bit of piano or is maybe at a beginner or an intermediate level, they could play at whatever level they're at. Um, so that's what that course is. And then the last couple of months, I finished two courses on solfege, so Crash, crash Course in Solfege, um, Major Edition and Minor Edition, which takes people through all of the building blocks of movable dough solfege, complete with Kodai hand signs. So I've been busy. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, so I want to talk about as much as those uh, offerings as we can, but the one that I really want to hone in on for a lot of today is the Piano Improvisation for Everyone course. So just so all of my audience is aware, I actually took the whole course. I just finished it last night, and it's great. And although I would say I have a little bit of experience in improvisation, teaching improvisation is something that's always been a little tricky for me, and I got a lot of great ideas from your course of things I can do with my own students. But before talking uh, specifically about that, just in general, whenever I talk to students or other people, piano teachers, there seems to be this huge fear of improvisation um, where people feel like that they have so many choices and I don't know what to do and they kind of tend to freeze up. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how in your course and in general when you're teaching improvisation, how you sort of alleviate some of those fears. Well, I think I think the biggest fear about it is if if we we as piano teachers get too in tune to the idea that we're playing with our eyes all the time. And I learned this way that we play 
from our eyes. We are taught to read. Reading is important. And what can end up happening is that can become a huge crush, crutch for people. Mm-hmm. And I know people who are very advanced level, paid, you know, doctorates in, in classical piano where they freak out if they need to improvise. And so right. the idea of this course or the idea of improvising is to take that, the eyes out of it and tune back into the ears and you could even say to like the heart space or the spiritual space of, of playing where you're just trying to make sound for the sake of sound um, and just trying to kind of enjoy what the piano has to offer without it being so structured. So in the course, the, the first thing I do is called wind chimes and you take the black notes of the piano and you just very gently try to play some sound. Like what sound can you play to mm-hmm. sound like wind chimes? And I haven't found anybody who is upset by that or gets stressed out. It's when you put the blues scale in front of them and say, okay, now you're going to do this, now you're going to do that. It's like we take that away and we say, now we're just going to play some melodic material on the black notes. And what ends up happening is people start to have, at once the initial shock and horror of it, (laughs) of like, I'm improvising, where's off? They start to relax. They start to feel kind of connected to like the bigger picture of music and just to the idea of sound in the air. And there's so many different directions you can go with it. So I find that I've done this with people who are in their 70s and I've done it with people who are five years old. So it's really anybody. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of like uh, when I was looking at that wind chimes activity, which is one where you kind of play on the black notes and then you sort of say, oh, now what if it was really windy? Then maybe you would play like this. It targets a lot of like what a lot of my students are like when they first sit down at the piano without being prodded in any direction, just kind of playing around. What's it like when I play up high? What's it like when I play down low? And so I think a lot of improvisation activities in your course channel that and, and start from a kid's initial instinct when they sit at a piano, which is not to read, which is just to play around and experience the piano, as you say. Right. Um, Yeah. And it's interesting because my son is eight and I'm his piano teacher. And of course, once I finished the course, I started taking him through it. I take him through all my courses (laughs) to see what will happen. You know, obviously Uh he gets it one-on-one. He doesn't do the video course. Uh Um, But what ended up happening was when he started playing wind chimes, he discovered that some of the music that he hears when he's playing Minecraft is actually within that same pentatonic scale. So he got very excited, like what what ends up happening when you start to fiddle around with this and you allow your ear to be the dominant, um, you know, what's being dominantly used is you open your, your ears up to a way of hearing other things. So even something as simple as him playing his triads and inversions, he all of a sudden said to me, wait a minute, this is the theme from Mario. Right. <laughs> okay. I da, to think da, about that da. for a second. Right. Yes, you're right. It, it, it's the uh-huh. it's the tri- the major triad in its first mm-hmm. inversion is the is the the pickup to that. So it's really about getting back to your ears in a big way, and then also developing a relationship with the topography of the piano. And this hmm. is something again, if you've spent most of your life playing classical music, there is such a relationship with what you're seeing with your eye. Mm -hmm. Um, your eye, your lifted eye looking at the music. But in jazz, we spend a lot of time with our eyes down. Mm -hmm. And I've developed a pretty deep relationship with the topography of the keyboard and Mm -hmm. what that looks like and what it sounds like. 
So it, it's a it's a different way of approaching, and obviously the jazz people's people need to look have their eyes up. But yeah. I do think for the people who are more classically trained, eyes down is really useful because you can really find some more material there. Yeah, and this idea of you're talking about about your son improvising and then realizing, oh, this sounds like Mario, and now he's building his ear, um, goes to like one of my big takeaways when I took your improvisation course. Is that like sometimes when I teach improvisation, one sort of worry that I have is it is kind of unrelated to the rest of the lesson and it's kind of just off in its own little corner. But what you do a great job of is your course is you integrate improvisation with other elements of music. And so I was realizing when I was taking it like that I could teach anything through improv. So in your course, you um, utilize improv in a way that integrates all sorts of aspects of music. You use it to teach contour. You use it to teach skips versus steps. You use it to teach rhythm, to form, to articulation, dynamics, modes, um, and ultimately composition. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, in your lessons, how you integrate improv into the whole totality of what you want to teach them rather than just as kind of like a five minute fun tag on at the end of the lesson that doesn't have to do with anything else. Well, th that's the thing. It's it's a matter of context. So it, yeah. I have I have several students, as I said, I, one of my things that I'm very known for is teaching singers how to play piano. And mm -hmm. at some point, because I, I I'm a voice teacher too, and I'm a voice mm -hmm. technician. So at some point, all of my singers end up playing piano. And what's what's interesting is that they're not quite at the level from a pianistic point of view that they have the technique to actually improvise over a set of chord changes, but they can improvise over a vamp. And so where we end up finding is a two chord vamp with maybe a pentatonic scale that works over both of them. And so that's something that we put in there. Um, if I have a student who's very keen on doing pop stuff, and most of my classical students, I still have a handful of them, we end up doing a certain amount of um, pop stuff. Well, let's teach a little pop improvisation. So if they're playing Imagine by John Lennon, we'll open a little section up and put a little string of chords in there and have them noodle around on it. So it's really about trying to take improvisation and have it be a part of what we're already learning rather than, like you said, like this is a little little something we're, we're putting on at the end for, for no purpose. Although it is a great technical situation. My, a lot of my jazz um, students can get very, you'd think that they'd be, you know, improv masters. But, you know, the issue with jazz improvisation is it can be very rules-oriented. Oh, and it can be very, very intensive from a chord point of view that you're thinking of chord tones and modes and this and that. And so once again, pulling them back to what the essence of improvising is, which is really thinking about contour. Um, what does the mode feel like when you're inside the mode, when you're living there long enough? Like how can you draw melody out of this? How can you get comfortable with um, notes that are tense or dissonant? So it, it's sort of it, it's sort of a way to step back from from improvising too. Hmm. That's interesting that you're saying that a jazz uh, that your jazz students can tend to over intellectualize improvisation in this not the same way, but to the same extent that some of the classical uh, students can too. Uh, that's really interesting. The other thing I want to talk about as far as teaching improvisation, one thing that I'm often thinking about in my own teaching is sort of the sequence of teaching improvisation. So when I'm teaching something like music theory, it's pretty easy to build off 
you know, what you did the previous week, the next week, and then now we can take what we did and now add on this. And it, it sort of sequences itself in a very natural way. With improvisation, sometimes, at least to me, it doesn't feel quite as intuitive. So um, I'm wondering if you could talk about how you sort of sequence your improvising work um, in a way that makes sense both in your course and in general with your students so that there's a clear progression and it's not just one-off activities. Right. So, for example, the wind chimes uh, exercise starts with just one hand doing it. Um, and so the right hand just playing those sounds. And then we say, well, okay, now let's do your left hand doing some contours. And let's see if the hands together can play some melodic material together. And so the way that I think about everything is not teaching you 10 things, but teaching you one thing 10 different ways. That's the biggest thing I ever learned um, in music was it, it, it's better to learn one thing 10 different ways than it is to learn 10 things. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So if, if I'm thinking about this, um, the wind chimes exercise again, mm -hmm. I can play it in my right hand. I can play it in my left hand. I can have my left hand and right hand um, play the melody. I can have my left hand play ah, some kind of accompaniment while my right yeah. hand plays a melody. My right hand can play an accompaniment while my left hand plays a melody. Hmm. My left hand can be legato. My right hand can be staccato. So, so what it is, and, and, and this is really where I, I feel like um, my jazz training was, was very thorough mm -hmm. that way, and that's how I, I was, really, was really taught and how I think about it is mm -hmm. what is available to me under this certain set of circumstances. Yeah. So if I see a C7 chord, what, can, what is available to me? And as you go along, and I, I teach my jazz students this way too, as you go along, you might start out and say, well, I see a C7 chord. I got two things that I can do. And it's like, well, those two things are good, but have you inverted them? Have you played one of them in the left hand and one of them in the right? Have you played them staccato? Have you played them legato? Um, have you considered this as an alternative note? And so as you're doing that, you're building more and more resources to choose from. Um, and so that's how I approach it. Whenever I learn one thing, I'm like, well, what else can I do with this? It's sort of like chopped. <laughs> if you watch the Food Network, it's like I've got a basket of stuff. What am I going to do with this? <laughs> I watch MasterChef instead of Chopped, but so they do the same thing. That's my right, right. It's like you, get, you you sort of like, it's like, well, what do I have available to me to use? Yeah. And then mm -hmm. with with what's here, what can I do? What are the options of things that I could do? I can boil it. I can bake it. I can fry it. I can. What else can I do? with it. And so, you know, I, I find that that can be a lot less intimidating for my students because I'm not giving, sending them home with notebooks full of stuff to play. I'm giving them one or two things and I'm saying, I want to see what you can get from this. Um, I want to see where you can draw some material out of this. And, you know, I've taught a lot of people, especially in a jazz context, I've taught a lot of people and not two of them sound the same, you know, because we all learn all the stuff, all the permutations, but which ones they choose is up to them. Right. So I thought it would be fun if we could simulate an example of this so some of our listeners who are interested in trying improv activities with their own students could have an idea of what you're talking about. So can you indulge me and pretend I'm a student and walk me through an example of one activity that could, as you say, lead down a road to 10 different things? So we've already talked about the uh, the wind chimes on the black notes. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to look at just the white notes, right? Okay. And there's lots of them on the piano. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you have the option in your right hand to 
be ascending or descending and you can move by steps. So that means that you're not going to skip any notes. You can either repeat a note or you can move by a step up or a step down. And you can be in time if you want. You don't have to be in time. You can be rubato. But take a second and see where your ear wants to lead you after you, after you play one note. Okay. Good. Now, is that the most musically that you could play that? Is the way you could play that where no. it sounds a little bit right? Is there a way that okay. you could? And this is what the student would do, right? That's how the student yeah, would play it. I was it. trying to do an and impersonation of what my students exactly, would do. <laughs> exactly. And so is there a way that you can play that that feels more authentic, that feels a little bit more um, musical or that ties in a little bit more to your inner mm. ear or your heart or your creativity? So see what you can create okay. from that. So that was a very different experience. Yeah. So now as you as you continue that same general idea, whenever you feel ready to, your left hand is going to come in and it's going to play an A on the bottom and an E on top. So your left pinky will play on an A, your left thumb will play on an E, and whenever your melody is finished in your right hand, your left hand is going to respond to that by playing the open fifth. Okay. I could imagine a student getting particularly excited about that last bit. I've noticed with all my students, once you introduce the open fifth and they add that, then suddenly it's mind blown. Absolutely. And that can yeah. go a million different ways right. because those, those open fifths don't give so much structure. They give enough structure. So, you know, you, your choice between playing A and E is an open fifth or play F and C is an open fifth or playing D and A is an open fifth. But none of those get you squeezed back into like feeling like you're playing Jingle Bells or Mary Had a Little Lamb. So if you can stay more in the modal realm, it's it's almost a way of stimulating some creativity because it doesn't sound like an annoying Mickey Mouse kind of right. song. Yeah, it sounds like a a little bit more like a like a deeper, a spiritual, a creative, a mysterious kind of place. And usually, people enjoy that sound. Yeah, absolutely. And I like how you were able to tie in working on technique, musicality, learning what a chord is, what a fifth is. And so that goes to your point about turning one thing into 10 things. Right. And you could do you could do intervals. You could play a melody, a melody only in thirds. Yes. And as far as intervals in your course, you began with improvising in steps, followed by improvising in skips. I like starting your course with intervals in that way. Now I'd like to turn to your Piano Skills for Singers course. On a musical level, a lot of the material in this course is probably already familiar to many of our listeners. But we do often 
come into situations where we're confronted with students who have a strong vocal background and are interested in how they can use piano as a way to help them as singers. So can you talk about how in your course you deviate from the traditional model of piano lessons? Right. So so both Piano Skills for Singers Level 1 and Level 2 are a big break from traditional piano lessons. I'm actually giving a talk at the Jazz Educators Network conference tomorrow. That's going to be a, a big challenge to how the piano community has generally worked with singers, um, which I give a D minus most of the time to how the, the curricula is set up. Um, and the reason being, when we're considering our students... The way that we're training a pianist to be a capital P pianist is going to be different than if we're training somebody who's using the piano in a different way, right? So our traditional um, learning by eye, hands together, um, sight reading, um, two and three part inventions, hands together scales, don't get me started on that, is not going to be a direct route for what a singer would need. Now, this doesn't mean that somewhere down the road they don't want to learn all that stuff. Of course, we make that available. But my my goal for everybody is to make sure that I can serve their immediate needs first. And so what do singers need to be able to do at the piano? Well, they want to be able to accompany themselves, which means they need to learn how to fake, like, immediately. Um, they need to be able to, to play basic chords in major and minor in 12 keys, they need to be able to read a chord chart so that they can download lyrics, right, with the little yeah. chord symbols in them and sing their favorite songs and accompany themselves. Um, in the process of that, you teach them enough technique so that they can play effectively without injuring themselves. So we make sure that they get their five-finger position correct, um, that they're fingering triads with one, three, five and not one, two, five for root position or one, two, four. I've seen it all. It's terrible. Um <laughs> You know, and then from there, we think, well, what's the next step? And the next step is, can they play voice exercises in 12 keys? So I do a lot of things that are um, pretty, if my classical piano teacher would be horrified, would be screaming into the wind if they found out that um, I don't teach scales in octaves. I teach nine note scales with the same fingering in all 12 keys. <laughs> so it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> In all 12 keys. Oh, keys. interesting. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because you don't need to play hands together scales in two octaves if you're not planning to ever play Mozart or Beethoven or play any of those runs. It's not needed. Again, you can do it later. But the goal is to really serve the students. How can I get in four weeks um, my student to feel like, wow, I can really play. I can really accompany myself. I can do it. And then teach the whistles and bells later. Interesting. Okay. What if it was a situation where it was a singer um, who came into lessons and they were not necessarily looking for piano lessons as a way to supplement their voice lessons? They're actually genuinely interested in both, but they just happen to be very passionate about singing. Is there any way that you play to their strengths or can incorporate their interests without actually structuring the curriculum as if all they want to do is use piano as a supplement to their singing? Well, it depends on what it is because, again, mm -hmm. the piano isn't a supplement to the singing necessarily. Okay. The, the, there's a singer, there's a pianist, and then there's the singer-pianist. And my argument is every singer should be a singer-pianist, right? And that can mean different things for different people, right? Um, Anne Hampton Calloway, 
uses the piano in a very specific way, whereas, um, you know, Lady Gaga is using it differently, right? Or somebody who's just, I mean, Lady Gaga is a very good, good pianist, but for somebody who's just kind of strumming, I mean, there's a great video, videos of Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks is a pretty, you know, no offense to Stevie, I love her, I worship her. She's a pretty mediocre piano player, but she's sitting there not playing from the Bastion adult beginner book. She's accompanying herself in her own songs. So again, it's really about evaluating what the student wants and needs and helping them to determine what they need. Because what singer doesn't want to be able to accompany themselves? Like, who wouldn't want to do that? It's the, it's the greatest joy. And then I would also argue, shouldn't every pianist also be a singer pianist? That was going to be my next question. It's so interesting that it's yeah. so common, yes. almost a stereotype for voice teachers to recommend that their students take piano lessons. But the other way around, never. I mean, and I do think that's interesting. Well, you haven't seen my, my studio. I, I, my, so many of my um, piano students end up singing, too. I mean, it's, it's, like, it, it's, it's like a contagious problem that we have here where all of my singers end up playing piano and all of my pianists end up singing. And we're talking the most, like, awkward 17-year-old jazz pianist guys who are like, you know, I really love Radiohead, and I'm like, listen, dude, if you want to do Radiohead, you're gonna have to sing. And oh, you would so be, in your piano you'd lessons, you'd be very surprised to see how many people. Oh yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I've never thought of that. Like actively encouraging your students to learn songs and sing in a piano lesson. That's that's cool. It's great that it's been absolutely, so well received in your studio. Well, and also it's a relatively easy thing to do if you're, oh, sorry, <laughs> if it's a relatively easy thing to do, um, you know, if somebody wants to learn to play a couple of their favorite pop songs, it's much easier to have them learn the chords and sing the melody than it is for them to come up with some kind of an accompaniment strategy and play it, you know, and a lot of times it doesn't end up count coming out sounding right. It sounds like bad cocktail piano if you're doing instrumental versions of, you know, Radiohead songs or, or Alicia Keys or something. It, it really sounds better and more satisfying if you're actually playing it and singing it, right? Absolutely. Well, that's great. Okay, so I'm wondering, if, um, just to end off today, we touched mostly on the um, improvisation and piano for singers class. I'm wondering if you could, um, to end off, just give our listeners a sense of, what the other classes are that you offer and just in general what sort of resources you offer and how people can learn more about you. Um, so the other courses that I have are um, a course called Jazz Piano Accompaniment, which is, you know, soup to nuts, everything you need to know to play jazz. Um, but it's in a solo context, so you don't have to be in a band setting. So it's perfect for any of the, you know, classical pianists who maybe don't have access to a bass player all the time. So you could really learn how to accompany um, and do some improv and learn how to play the blues and stuff like that. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And then the two courses called Crash Course in Solfege, which are building really solid musicianship skills. And I've used this stuff for 20 years, 25 years probably with my students. And um, it's a great, great place to, to send your students to take if you don't have time to address musicianship in your lessons. I know a lot of students, uh, teachers are sending your students there um, to, to kind of build that foundation. Um, so I have a website called uh, pianoandvoicewithbrenda.com. And that has, I've written tons of blog posts on all kinds of 
um, technical things and music business stuff and practice tips. Um, and I have a YouTube channel um, also called Piano and Voice with Brenda where I release all kinds of tutorials on lots of different subjects and I post videos of me performing in a ton of different styles. Um, and it's great resources for people who are learning, but also for um, teachers to use um, so to, to get ideas for their students. So you can connect with me there. Awesome. Well, Brenda, it was so great speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up Creative Conversations for Today's Piano Teachers. I'll see you next time.